we will now have in this final session of Singapore Perspectives 2023 a dialogue with our guest of honor, Mr. Lawrence Wong. He is Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Finance. He co-chairs the Multi-Ministry Task Force on COVID-19 and is the Deputy Chairman of the Monetary Authority of Singapore. Mr. Wong is a member of the GIC Board, the Future Economy Council, the Research, Innovation and Enterprise Council, and the National Research Foundation Board. He also co-chairs the Singapore-Shanghai Comprehensive Cooperation Council. He will first make his speech, which will then be followed by a moderated Q&A session by Ms. Deborah Sun, Group Head, Brand Communications and Marketing at SingLife. May I now invite DPM on stage, please? Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, it's very good to have this opportunity to join all of you today for this session of this IPS Singapore Perspectives. Our work is a very timely theme for this year's Singapore's, Singapore Perspectives because work is not just a source of income, it's also about dignity and purpose in life and it's crucial to our social compact. It's central to our system of meritocracy where we want every citizen to progress and excel regardless of their start points in life. That's why promoting work has been such a key part of the government's economic and social policies. A healthy labour market has long been the foundation for inclusive growth and shared prosperity in Singapore. But as our external environment and as the nature of work itself evolves, so will our challenges. So today, I thought I would share with you three such challenges and also offer some ideas on how we intend to tackle them. The first challenge is the future of work. We all know that we are living in a period of change where technological advancements are disrupting industries everywhere. I do not believe that this will drive us towards a jobless future, which is a dystopian future that some people talk about. I don't think that will happen because in Singapore, as well as in many other advanced economies, there are still more job openings than workers to fill and robotics and automation will help to fill, fill these gaps. But the nature of jobs will change. In fact, this is already happening. Most of today's jobs didn't exist 30 years ago, and likewise, 30 years from now, there will be new jobs sprouting from scientific and technological progress. And the thing is, not everyone will be able to benefit equally from these technological changes. Those with the right skills will be able to seize the opportunities and enjoy tremendous rewards, while those who are unable to adjust and adapt will certainly face more challenges. Naturally, this will create anxieties, especially amongst older mid-career workers, because they are at greater risk of career disruption as their skills will be less current, by definition. And the fear of being made obsolete is very real for them. 
It can also be daunting for mid-careers to have to switch to a new field and start from scratch with uncertain prospects. And that's why we will need to review our policies and strengthen our institutions to ensure that work remains a central way for Singaporeans to thrive. The second challenge is the security of work, particularly with regards to retirement security. In Singapore, we have the CPF system, which is premised on self-reliance and work and funded by contributions from workers themselves as well as their employers. The CPF provides for retirement in a sustainable way, and we have avoided the pitfalls of defined benefit pension systems in many other places where falling birth rates and rising longevity have made it harder for governments to support your citizens' retirement needs in a financially sustainable manner. At the same time, we have not kept our CPF system where it was. We have evolved it over the years, and in particular, the government has increasingly played a larger role in recent years to help Singaporeans earn and save for their retirement. For example, we now provide more interest for those with lower CPF balances, We've uplifted the incomes of lower-wage workers through workfare and the progressive wage model, and we introduced silver support to supplement the retirement income of seniors who had low incomes in their working years. But with more disruptions and volatility expected in our economy and our lives, uh, Singaporeans will find it harder to consistently build up their CPF savings. And so here again, we must consider what we can do together to help Singaporeans better meet their retirement needs. Then the third challenge is the challenge around the reward of work. How can we make rewards fairer and more equitable? And so far again, we have been doing well in the sense that we have been able to sustain income growth across different segments of the workforce, with lower income groups enjoying higher real wage growth than the middle income, or higher income for that matter. And that is why income inequality in Singapore, as measured by the Gini coefficient, has been steadily coming down over the last decade. But again, we can do better in several areas. For example, we know that the median starting salary for university graduates is about twice that of ITE graduates and one and a half times that of polytechnic graduates. And while some difference is understandable, too wide a gap can lead to problematic outcomes. For example, some may choose not to enter vocations they have been trained for or may feel pressured to pursue a degree just to get the credentials even if it's not aligned with their strengths or interests. It also becomes harder to match the right persons with the right skills to the right jobs. And all this compounds the sense of a continuous rat race and paper chase, adding to the worries and anxieties of Singaporeans. So left unaddressed, all of these challenges, which I've just outlined briefly, can adversely impact our social compact. We've seen this happen in many other places where workers find themselves left behind or they feel that the system is unfair and then resentment sets in and social cohesion starts to fray. 
And in fact, we've heard similar concerns around the issues I outlined just now in our Forward Singapore conversations and also at NTUC's conversations with workers. And that's why the government has been studying what we can do to address these concerns and to strengthen our social compact. Uh, today, I will share some preliminary thoughts with you on what we are thinking about. And I look forward certainly to hearing your views and perspectives later at the dialogue. First, uh, we will need to redouble our investments in skills and human capital. We've started on this journey with Skills Future a few years ago. We've made a lot of progress since then, but there's still much more that needs to be done. In particular, we must strengthen adult skills training and improve pathways to get to better jobs, and this must form a core pillar of our refreshed social compact. Because we know that these days, most workers will have multiple careers in their lifetimes. Even in the rare case of somebody working in the same company throughout their lives, the work they do will likely evolve over time. And that means workers must be able to access skills training to update themselves and stay relevant. And this is not just about undergoing a half-day orientation course, but really going through substantive training that could last a few days or even weeks. Unfortunately, we all know, even from our own personal experience, it's not easy for people to enroll in such meaningful and substantial training. Employers may not support the training programs, or even if employers say we allow our workers to attend, the workers may not, they may not pay the salaries of the workers during the period of training. And not surprisingly, mid-career workers, many of whom need to take care of both elderly parents and children, will find it difficult to commit to such training. Workers who are displaced from their jobs face even more acute challenges. Some may need to switch to a different field altogether, but they find it difficult to go for training when they are unemployed and still have families to support. So they may end up just taking the first job available, even if it is not a good fit for them, which is not ideal. We will therefore need to consider how we strengthen our skills and training ecosystem to provide more support for workers, give them a fresh injection of skills, and help them be better prepared for the transition to jobs in new growth areas. And we have to be careful in thinking about what we do that it does not erode the incentive to work. Because we have seen the results of unemployment benefits offered in other places where displaced workers receive generous benefits, but they then find it more attractive to stay unemployed than to get back into the workforce. So we want to avoid these sorts of negative outcomes. And that's why what we really should be thinking about is more like re-employment support rather than unemployment support. It is about re-employment support, providing some form of financial cushion to workers while enabling them to upgrade their skills and helping them, helping to place them in new roles that best fits their abilities and aptitudes. We will also have to consider other parts of the ecosystem. It's not just about what the government does. There are other important pieces that we need to look at. We need employers to step up 
to invest in the training of their workers and to encourage more training that leads to recognized, verifiable credentials. We need more innovative training programs, including work-based learning options, and these will need to be curated and vetted to ensure that they can lead to better employment and earnings outcomes. And we need to improve labour market information and strengthen labour market intermediaries so that there can be better matching of jobs and workers. And in fact, we also want to provide workers with access to their own data on their skills and competencies, as well as the areas of future industry demand and growth, so that workers can be empowered and take greater responsibility to plan their own careers. These are all major changes which we are thinking about to take our skills future ecosystem to the next level and to strengthen our system of lifelong learning and training. So that's one big area that we are applying our, our minds on and we will be reviewing and seeing what more changes and improvements we can do. The second broad strategy is to think how best to bolster retirement sec security and assure Singaporeans that they can meet their basic needs in retirement. And here we have to understand that the circumstances are different for different cohorts. The Pioneer and Madeka generations are mostly retired. Uh, they have contributed invaluably to building today's Singapore, but they did not benefit fully from the more recent enhancements to our CPF system. And that's why we have rolled out substantial Pioneer Generation and Merdeka Generation packages to support them. And we will continue to review ways we can take care of their needs and complement their family support. Then if you go to the next cohort, you're talking about those who are in their 50s and early 60s today. Uh, we have also put in place various measures to boost their employability and their CPF savings. But they too have limited runway to work, save and benefit from the CPF system. And we will have to study how best to help them meet their basic retirement needs. For new entrants as well as younger workers, they will have a longer runway before retirement and they should aim to consistently work and upskill themselves. And we will pay closer attention to those with lower incomes. We already have workfare and progressive wages to uplift their, wake, their incomes. And with an enhanced skills training system, along the lines of what I mentioned just now, we will be able to help them progress throughout their careers. So with better jobs and wages and our enhancements to the CPF system, they should be able to accumulate more savings for their retirement. And of course, we must continue to look out for the more vulnerable segments. There are platform workers or gig workers. We have accepted the recommendations from the advisory committee last year, and we are studying how to implement these recommendations and help these workers save for their retirement. And there will be other groups like people with disabilities and caregivers. And again, we will have to see how best to work with their families and community organizations to better support them. Ultimately, we want to be able to assure all Singaporeans, as long as you work and contribute consistently to your CPF, you will be able to meet your basic retirement needs. And for those who do not have the ability to work, or the runway to work and save 
through CPF, we will find ways to take care of you. And this is how we can strengthen our system of collective risk sharing and give everyone peace of mind over their retirement needs as they grow old. Third, we must invest in quality jobs and make every profession viable and every pathway rewarding. Here, we want to focus on, on jobs for our ITE and Polytechnic graduates, given the wage gap that I mentioned earlier. And we are working with business partners to provide more industry exposure and work-study opportunities for Polytechnic and ITE students in their industry of choice. We also need to address starting salaries and career progression for these students. And it's something that we are already doing. For example, some years back, we saw that my, many ITE students trained as lift technicians were not entering the industry. Instead, they were doing other jobs when they graduated. And then we dived into the issue and we realized that their starting salaries were too low. They were just $1,300. This was in 2016. And that's why we have since put in place the progressive wage model for lift technicians. Starting salaries are now 40% higher at 1850 and set to increase further over the next few years. But it's not just about the starting salary. Once you enter the industry, you can also look forward to a progression to supervisory and specialist roles with greater responsibility and higher pay to match your expanded responsibilities. So we must continue to improve job prospects and establish better career progression across all fields. We will continue to expand the progressive wage model to cover more areas with lower wage jobs. And besides the progressive wage model, which focuses on lower wage jobs, we must look at the next tier of jobs, which includes many associate professionals and technicians. We have already made some headway in some sectors, so this is work in progress, and we have made some headway in several areas. For example, preschool teachers today can aspire to better career prospects. Some can become specialists in fields like early intervention for children with special needs. Others can take on leadership positions to mentor newer teachers, develop teaching practices, or even oversee clusters of preschool centers. So if you are interested in preschool, it's not just better starting salaries, but a clearer sense of career progression as a specialist or as a leader in the field. In the IT sector, the industry associations SGTech and the Singapore Computer Society are now working on programs with major tech companies to expand opportunities for ITE and Polytechnic graduates over the next three years. And our goal must be to do the same across all sectors and industries, be it in social services or technical jobs. Every industry must relook its skills ladder and invest in ways to attract, retain, and reward their workers. This is not just about reshaping the labor market. It's also about shifting our perception towards work and embracing a broader definition of what counts as good jobs for us to recognize skills and competencies rather than be overly focused on paper qualifications. 
Realizing this vision will require all of us to do our part. Employers can do more to hire, train and recognize all workers instead of pigeonholing them, pigeonholing them or holding them back unfairly based on their starting qualifications. Consumers, which means all of us, must be willing to pay more for certain goods and services to uplift the wages of those who provide them. Basically, we cannot demand for services de delivered by our fellow citizens to be priced cheaply and in the same breath lament that their wages are too low. It's completely inconsistent. I know this is not an easy conversation to have at a time when people are also concerned about rising prices and cost of living issues. And that's why we will have to manage this economic restructuring carefully and the government will do whatever we can to provide support during this transition. But importantly, each of us as parents, teachers, colleagues and friends, all of us must do our part to recognize and value one another and accord dignity and respect to everyone for the work that they do. You know, in life, there's always a temptation to compare with others, to see who is better. Some of this comparison can help drive healthy competition and a desire to learn and improve. But sometimes, the comparisons are motivated by the wrong reasons and shaped by the desire to acquire status and social prestige. We saw this recently when there was a social media debate about luxury bags and what is deemed branded. I mean, if you have not been following the debate, then uh, just go online and Google Charles and Keith. Uh, but it extends to other areas too. We continue to see parental preferences for certain branded or top schools, even though MOE says every school is a good school. We continue to see preferences for branded jobs that supposedly confer higher status in life. And even within one industry, there is sometimes a perception of a hierarchy of jobs, with some areas deemed more prestigious than others. I wish things were different, but I am a realist. I know it's not going to be easy to change these mindsets, uh, but we should all try to appreciate and recognize one another for who we are. Because at the end of the day, everyone is different. We are each blessed with unique gifts and talents. There is no need to compare with others. The only comparison we need to make is an internal one to focus on our own lives, to keep learning, improving, and ultimately, to be better versions of ourselves. Now, much of what I've shared today and the changes we will need to make will require the buy-in from everyone in society, just as, just as it has been throughout our nation's history. And we are fortunate that in Singapore, we have built up over the decades a strong foundation of tripartite partnership with the government, unions and employers working together to ensure that growth and prosperity is shared by everyone in Singapore. So I look forward to working closely with our tripartite partners and other stakeholders as we chart our new way forward. And as we continue with our Forward Singapore deliberations, which are ongoing, 
I invite all of you to partner with the government in co-creating our new social compact and shaping our future together. To conclude, work has evolved and will continue to evolve, but good jobs and work will always remain a key pillar of our social compact in Singapore. We will spare no effort to ensure that the labour market of the future offers benefits, opportunity and security for all. And we will ensure that Singapore remains a place where everyone can progress throughout life, contribute meaningfully to society and forge fulfilling and dignified lives with greater assurance for today and tomorrow. Thank you very much and I look forward to our dialogue. Thank you, DPM. We will now start our question and answer session. Ms. Deborah Soon will be moderating this session. Ms. Soon, please. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. DPM Wong. The last time I moderated a panel at the IPS Singapore Perspectives was in 2018, I think, just before I left Mediacorp. And since then, I have changed job twice because the future of work is now, not tomorrow. And every day should be a day for you to learn new skills and learn about new industries. But I was persuaded today to come back to moderate this because Mr. Jandas Devon was particularly persuasive this year, but also because as my training was about being a journalist, I couldn't pass on the chance to grill or ask polite questions of the future Prime Minister. It's okay to grill. So you all have to take that cue and also grill and ask difficult and penetrating questions so as to give him the opportunity to give us insightful and non-standard non-prepared answers. I'm completely non-prepared. I have no idea what you're going to ask. <laughs> so I will also give preference to everybody on the floor to ask questions and not on pigeonhole, which is somewhere here, which I'm not quite paying attention to. And please come up to the mics, identify who you are, and ask those questions and put your face and name to the question you're asking and ask with courage and conviction. So I will kick it off because I think we have limited time by first asking Mr. Wong about what he said in his speech when you said earlier about not, com not focusing so much on brands and comparisons and trying to change society's view of how we view progress or success or work performance. It is very easy for us to say that we should change this. But what will you do about it? How would you change this? Well, I think the starting point is to recognize that this exists and to be honest with ourselves. Uh, I think it exists in every society, so we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves too, right? Everyone, everywhere you go, these comparisons are made. But Singapore is a small city. Um, there are not that many degrees of separation uh, from one another. And all of us growing up, have been through this, where parents meet, New Year, whatever, mm. festive occasions. They ask, how's your child doing? How are they doing in school? What school are they going to? What, uh, do they want to be in the future? And then their aunties and uncles will say, what do you want to be in the future? 
and then the child will give a sheepish reply, and then they will compare. So these things happen, and I, I, I'm no, I know it's, you know, it's not easy to change mindsets. Um, comparisons, some of it is inevitable, but I think we, if we, uh, if we get overwhelmed by such comparisons, and young people in particular, then I don't think it makes for a very healthy society or a very healthy mindset. So the best, as I said, is to recognize it and for each one of us to make the effort not to get overwhelmed by these comparisons, but really to lit, focus on our own lives and try to do better over a period of time. It's easier said than done, I fully recognize that, but I'm sure it can be achieved. Well, realistically, in the workforce as well, all of us who have to do performance appraisals know that your bonus or your outcome is dependent on how we do compared with somebody else next to you. So this is what drives performance in a way and the future. Um, I'm trying to understand if you're asking Singaporeans to, all right, let's be a bit easier on the edges even as we try to perform and drive forward. Because that is very difficult to do given that we do not have that many resources and manpower is, and talent is what we have. How do you think we could progress in this area? It doesn't mean that we work less hard. No? By all, you know, I'm not saying let's all sit back and smell the roses. I, fundamentally, as a small open economy, we will have a very competitive economy. Uh, we will have to work hard to make a living and to stay relevant. That is the reality. But we don't have to make things worse on top of all that, right? By having these invidious comparisons with one another. So yes, within the workplace, there will always be a appraisal system. You will be ranked. In some ways, you'll get a performance grade, which impacts your performance bonus. Hopefully, that system is fair and equitable. But at the end of the day, you don't have to go around saying, oh, my colleague got grade A, and I got B, and I got C. <laughs> Hence, I deserve more money than That's somebody else if I'm an Because A, right? in the end, you look at your own performance. Did you deliver the goals that you were set up for you at the start of the year? And can I do better? And I think if that is our attitude and mindset to keep on wanting to do better for ourselves, not because I have to keep up with the Joneses, not because I have to you know, benchmark myself with my colleague, and it's just about self-improvement, progress, learning, improvement, I think we will enjoy more fulfilling lives as well. So picking up that point, which you also mentioned in your speech about progress, training, self-improvement, and that uh, as the nature of jobs change, how, how did you do it through your life and your career? What was the mindset you had? What skills you had to improve on as you change through different jobs and as you prepare for your next job? As, as the Prime Minister, as the future Prime Minister? What do you think you have to do? I have to do a lot. <laughs> um, no, when I started out uh, working way back 1997, I think, you know, we, the older folks, anyone here older, right, would not have had the same exposure as young people have today, frankly. Right? I, when I started out, I had no idea what I wanted to do in life. Um, I had no clue what was the job I might apply for. Uh, my parents always told me, you be grateful for the opportunity to study. 
because of their generation, very few had gone to university, no, no one had gone to university, not my parents. Of my cousins, of my generation amongst my cousins, very few. So for them, if you can get to university, good for you. If you can't, you go and work. And if you want to go overseas to study, that's not even in the, it's not even a possibility. So you've got to look for your own resources. So I was lucky to get a scholarship. I joined the public service, but even when I joined the public service, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Uh, I didn't get into the administrative service at the start. And then when I was asked which ministry I wanted to join, I put MFA. Because you could travel. Nothing to do with my, my major, which was economics, and it was only because I enjoyed traveling. Yeah. Uh, and the people at MFA wisely saw through that when they interviewed me and they decided I was not suitable. It wasn't Kishore, right? I don't think Kishore was a permanent sec. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and, and they decided I was not suitable, and therefore I didn't get that job. I, then, and I started out as an economist um, in the government, in MTI. But, but there is a process of discovery about yourself as you work. Uh, and some doors open, some doors close, some other doors open. You learn more about yourself, you learn more about your strengths. Uh, and if you apply yourself to whatever your, your mind, to whatever you're doing at that particular time, be conscientious, be responsible, work hard, I think over time you get to know better what your abilities and strengths are, what your passions are. And this happened to me. I, I found that I enjoyed doing public service work, and that's why I eventually stayed on, and I've been staying on in public service all this while. But even in public service, the jobs I do have varied from one job to another, and my next job will be an even bigger job than my present job. So it's always about continuous learning and improving, and always wanting to do better. So what have you been doing to prepare for the next job? I thought I might get away with not answering no, that question. No, sorry. <laughs> well, you know, there's, there are a lot of things you can do to prepare. In, in my, I mean, for this particular case, you talk to people. I think mentors play a very important role, people who have gone through it before. So talking with ESM Go, for example, um, talking with present PM, understanding what kinds of responsibilities, what kinds of roles, what kinds of challenges they face. Um, I think that's very helpful, so that's one way. Um, and then, I suppose, in, in different aspects, right? For example, in public communications, you think very hard about what, you know, what platforms have I spoken at, to go on and to then talk. what can I do better at, right? Yes. And, and there is nothing like um, reviewing the speeches you gave, getting good feedback, you know, it's, it's very interesting, and this applies to all of us. When you give a public speech, when you speak in public, there's no shortage of people who will come up to you and say, good speech. Mm -hmm. But very few people come up to you and say, actually, you know, there's this point or that point that uh, you can improve. So really, it's about finding um, people you can trust, people whose opinions you value, to give you constructive feedback so that you can learn and you can improve. And that's something I do all the time. Okay, very inspiring. I would like to open the floor to questions. If I get to you, gentlemen over there. And as you all prepare your questions. Yes, please, go ahead. 
If you please identify yourself at the mic. Hello. All right. Thank you. Firstly, thank you, DPM Hang. Uh, sorry. DPM Wong. I'm so sorry. DPM Wong for that very insightful sharing. It's okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes. We get confused. I mean, people confuse the two of us sometimes. I apologize. I'm Marianne from Raffles Institution. Um, I just have one very simple question, nothing as sharp as what you've been asked yet. Um, I just wanted to comment on the very dominant narrative that we've been hearing throughout this entire uh, dialogue, including other panel sessions, about upskilling centered around tech as our main you know, economic narrative. And my question is, could this emphasis on taking jobs higher up in the value chain, you know, they are more focused on tech, subconsciously dismiss workers who are in and perfectly enjoy the current state of their jobs, which might be less recognized or perceived as less essential, such as hawkers or those in the art scene, as we saw from the COVID-19 survey. So how could we mitigate these impacts on other intangible aims like heritage, heritage or tradition and inclusion? Thank you. Sure. It, it, it's not to be... I mean, when we talk about upskilling and the importance of really keep uh, wanting to do better in every field, it is not always centered on technology. Technology is only an enabler. Yeah. And that enabler of technology will certainly cut across all areas. Even a hawker can learn to be better with technology. Even an artist, a musician, can improve and do better with technology. Um, you know, if you are into music, which I am, incidentally, you will be amazed at what you can do with digital technology today, right? In the old days, you play music, you have amplifiers, you have a big setup. Nowadays, you can bring a, something this size and you can replicate all of the sounds with digital technology. So technology doesn't have to remove the soul and the essence of arts and culture at all. It can supplement, it can amplify, it can enable artists, musicians, hawkers, everyone to do better. Uh, and the upgrading and upskilling is not confined to technology. Certainly, we can continue to improve our skills, not just using technology as an enabler, but other in other areas as well. We can improve our human skills we can learn better to be um, better negotiators. We can improve our abilities as leaders, how to persuade one another. We can improve our abilities to work in teams. So there's a whole range of skills out there beyond technology that I think we should be mindful of and we want to embrace. Thank you. Gentleman over there, please. Yeah, um, hi, Paul Tambayer from the university. Uh, thank you very much for sharing. It was also intriguing that uh, there was a hint that we may do away with stack rankings, or is that just wishful thinking? Uh, my question is actually uh, a question which I've asked uh, before in this forum, uh, and the two previous uh, speakers said that they were unable to answer this question. So, so the question is, um, would anyone actually want to be operated on by a 70-year-old neurosurgeon or ride in a bus driven by a 70-year-old bus driver and the basis of this question is the narrative seems to be that we need to keep working. And if we are unable to do a particular job, we've got to retrain. The bus driver has to become a bus driver mentor or something like that. But uh, I'm just asking whether there's a possibility that the, the idea, the silver support package, which is a tremendous package for, for low-income Singaporeans, could be made a little bit more universal 
so that because we make significant contributions to CPF, whether part of that could be in a risk pool kind of a, a sharing kind of uh, uh, system, so that there is not a substantial drop in, in income or quality of life uh, once you reach an age at which age just catches up with you. Because as you know, there's no fountain of youth. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope I will be able to give an answer this time, Paul. Uh, the, the reality is um, there's obviously a limit to how long we can work, but also we must recognize with uh, rising longevity, with uh, people living longer lifespans, actually when we do our surveys, the majority of people do want to work longer so long as they are healthy. Because a lot of people recognize that the minute they stop working, that's when their health deteriorates very quickly. And so people do want to work, and that goes back to the start of my presentation where I say work is more than just a source of income. Work provides dignity and purpose. There is a fu something fundamental and important about work. Now, the nature of work may change for these older folks. Uh, it may not be the same job. But we have already looked at retirement age. We have, you know, we talk about 65, 65 going up beyond 65, and we have a system in place for re-employment. So all that is in place. And with that system, someone who enters the workforce today works consistently. And consistently doesn't mean you have to be at work 100% of the time. Consistently means at least you have a stable job consistent. There may be occasions where you are out of work in between jobs, but so long as you work consistently with workfare, with progressive wages, with what we are doing in the labor market, then we want to be able to say, if you are a new entrant, you are a young adult entering the workforce, work consistently, whatever job you do, you can be assured of a basic retirement sum. That's how we want to design our CPF system. Of course, the older folks either retired already or those who are close to retirement will not be able to benefit from workfare as much because they have limited runway. And this is where schemes like CPF top-ups and server supports can help them. And we will work, work out how much, what more we can do in order to make sure we take care of them our pioneers, our Medeca generation, as, and as I mentioned, those who are in their 50s and 60s. So that's how we are thinking about strengthening our retirement system and giving everyone peace of mind for retirement. You talk about the retirement gap in the speech and how it is something, it is a big issue. How large actually is the retirement gap for Singaporeans? Well, the groups that um, if you look at the younger groups, I think we are all right because I think if with the younger age groups, because of workfare, because of progressive wages, because of extra interest on CPF, as I said, and, and, and there are some vulnerable areas like gig workers, but we are addressing that. So I think we are designing a system that young adults, new entrants should be all right. The gaps are greater for the pioneers, the Medeca, and those in their 50s and 60s, for the older folks, because they have not had the runway to benefit from the enhancements to the CPS system, as well as the labor markets that we have made in recent time. For the pioneers and the Medeca, uh, we have already rolled out schemes to help them. We will see what more we can do. 
for the 50s and 60s, we'll, early 60s, we'll have to study, and we are studying what more we can do to close the gap. That's where we are now, and we are in the midst of this review. Okay. Young gentleman over there. Thank you, Deputy Minister Wong. I'm Luke Pline from the United World College. My question is John Locke's proviso mandates, and I quote, enough and as good, inequality is okay as long as there are other enough opportunities and good opportunities in different sectors. 69.5% of Singapore's industry is service, about 25% is industry. Would it not be in Singapore's interest to expand the diversity across the sectors rather than continue within existing sectors that form the supermajority of Singapore's sectors? And my follow-up question to that is considering that institutions break like glass rather than bend like steel, should Singapore diversify its sectors with haste and urgency? Mm. Thank you. Um, you said the services is 75% it's a super majority but but in fact if you look at the economy services is a very broad classification for many subsectors services includes logistics wholesale trade retail hospitality F&B um, professional services real estate so it's not quite accurate to consider all of that and say oh it's just services and we have over-concentration of services. 75% of the economy is services, too concentrated. That's not how we look at it, because you have to break it down into the specific industries. Even manufacturing, which is 25% of our economy, we have been making great efforts to diversify our manufacturing sector. So it's not just electronics, but we have biomedical science, we have pharmaceuticals, um, we have a whole range of different precision engineering, so this diversification of our economy is something we have been doing over the years and will certainly continue to do. We don't want to be overly concentrated in any particular area and we want to make sure that there is a diverse, vibrant economy with opportunities for everyone to thrive. Thank you, sir. Anybody else from the floor? Yes, please. Oh, please show us. Oh, the gentleman over there, sorry. <laughs> Good afternoon, DPM. Uh, I'm Sean from the National Institute of Education. Uh, and my question is uh, regarding a recent comment that was made at a separate forum by the president of the Singapore Human Resources Institute, uh, who also happens to be the chief HR officer uh, at PSD. She said that uh, discriminatory workforce policies for LGBTQ plus individuals in Singapore are stupid and would deter foreign companies and foreign talent from coming into Singapore. I think given the recent uh, repeal and debate over Section 377A, we can also agree that the social compact in Singapore in that regard has shifted. So my question to you is, what is the government doing to move away and encourage companies to also move away from such, quote, stupid policies and implement some smart, clever ones that are more inclusive? So both, what is the government doing to encourage companies to implement some good inclusive workplace policies and what is the government itself as an employer doing in that regard? Sure, uh, we, we have talked about this, this is not new, we've 
talked about fair employment practice for some time and in a few National Day rallies ago, the Prime Minister talked about codifying some of these provisions into law, basically an anti-discrimination act, uh, which will require employers to really you know, make sure that their employment practices are fair and do not discriminate, uh, be it sex, race, or religion, or even age. Right? So it's not just discrimination can take many forms and we want every employer to make sure that when they hire, when they promote, when they appraise their staff, it's purely on the basis of work and merit, which ought to be the case. So we are taking actions with regards to legislation and we will continue to see how we can encourage more employers to uphold the, not just the letter of the law but the spirit of it to really promote more inclusive uh, workplace practices and fairer employment practices across the board and the public service will do its part too. Thank you. Uh, the young man first, because sorry Kishore, he was at the mic first. Good afternoon, DPM Wong. I am Hong Sheng from St. Andrew Junior College. Thank you for insightful suggestion on improving job prospects in general. But seeing the boost of gig economy during the pandemic, how can the government, as well as we as consumers, help to support them? Thank you. There is a role for platform workers and platform companies. So we do not think that will go away. We think that there will continue to be a role for gig workers in our economy. What we are concerned about are occasions where platform companies or platforms um, hire a lot of workers and these tend to be the younger, more vulnerable ones and they may be doing the work, gig work, enjoying the flexibility of gig work but in the end, they are really not building up sufficiently for their retirement savings. And that is why we convene an advisory committee, tripartite advisory committee, uh, some time back. They recently put out their recommendations that, the, that there needs to be a proper CPF system in place for these gig workers as well. And we are working through the recommendations and seeing how they can be implemented. So in future, there will still be gig work, there will still be platform companies. Uh, people may choose to you know, take on these jobs, but if they do, for whatever reasons, lifestyle, flexibility, at least they can be assured that they are also building up their retirement savings for the future. So that's what we are, are sort of a aiming for. Kishore first, please. DPM Wong, Kishore Mahubani from NUS. Uh, since you mentioned schools, I always tell everybody that I'm very proud that I went to the same Tanjung Katong Technical School as you did. <laughs> you, in talking about schools too, I noticed that when you were giving the speech, the word you used most often was we. We will do this, we will do that. And the whole onus of responsibility you were putting on the government to say that we will take care of this and we will take care of that. As you know, if you're giving the same speech in Michigan, and if you were saying, oh, it's up to the government to do this, it's up to the government to do that, they would look at you and say, hey, isn't it also a big, equally important responsibility for society to take care of itself and not rely so much on government? So going forward over the next 10 to 20 years, do you see a need to rebalance the contributions made by government and society when it comes to addressing such big issues as the one 
that you raised today? For sure, for sure. When I say we, in my, often in my remarks, I suppose I can be clearer. Um, but very often when I talk about we, it's not just the government alone. In fact, I, in, in one or two instances, I highlighted the role that all of us have to play. Employers will play a key role. Um, consumers, all of us, members of the public, will have to pay, play a key role in changing mindsets and being prepared to pay more for services delivered by our fellow citizens, especially if we are concerned about uplifting the wages of lower-income Singaporeans. So certainly, the we is not just government efforts alone, but we also recognize that the government has a role to play and can do more and that's something we are deliberating about. Not necessarily spending more, but it's also about policies and how we might review and update our policies. Uh, where spending is concerned, we think that there is some, some scope for government spending to increase. Uh, I've said this before in last year's budget. Uh, we spend, as a government now, about 18% of GDP. That's relatively low um, compared to many other developed countries but with uh, an aging population, with the needs for healthcare and social spending expected to rise, we think that by 2030, the government will spend about 20 plus percent of GDP. That's about a two percentage point increase. It may not seem like a lot to you, but you know, the GST increase, for example, hardly even meets that delta in increased spending, just that GST increase alone. So we, in other words, have to find other ways of generating revenues, and Singaporeans must be prepared to do their part to contribute those additional revenues in order for us to meet that increased expenditure and provide the necessary assurances and support for Singaporeans. We do not think we need to go all the way to what some European countries have done, which is to spend a lot more, 30, 30 over percent of GDP, and with taxes which are much higher, where GSD and VAT rates in many European countries are double digits, and personal income rates are top personal income rates are well above 30%. We don't think we need to get to that level, but I think from where we are today, there is scope for the government to do more, but it has to be in partnership with everyone else in society, and that's how we can refresh our social compact together. The lady at the back, please. Yes. DPM Wong, thank you for your speech. My name is Corinna Lim, I'm from AWARE. At any one time in Singapore, there are about 600,000 women who are not in the workforce. And um, so work is a very important issue for women and for my uh, organization. So the first question is, and we did a research on this and we found that many low-income women who needed they were low-income mothers who needed the money, but they weren't in work. One reason was childcare, and it was, it's great to see all the progress that's been made in childcare. However, the other reason was that work just didn't pay enough for them to actually go out to work. So um, the progressive wage model and uh, workfare are very important pieces of policy. With the increase in inflation, is the government reviewing the levels of the PWM and workfare? Because I think they will be the most badly hit since they can't really decide that, that their expenses are basics anyway. They can't really switch down to something that's less expensive. That's the first question. 
the second question I asked earlier, can we increase paternity leave because it is really important to equalize caregiving at home so that we can have equal equality in the workplace? And thirdly, the Anti-Discrimination Act, we've seen government statements that it will counter discrimination on the basis of gender, age, race, religion, and disability. This was before 377A was repealed. Will sexual orientation, gender identity be included in one of the categories that will be protected by the Anti-Discrimination Act? Thank you very much. Okay, three questions. Yep. Let me take them in turn. First, on inflation, it's certainly a concern for lower-wage workers. But you have to remember that lower-wage earners are not only benefiting from workfare and progressive wages. They are also receiving support from the government explicitly to help cope with inflation. Last year, the government provided sufficient support to offset entirely the inflation-driven increase in spending for low-income families. Setting aside workfare and progressive wages, which are separate measures, the support we gave in terms of utilities, rebates, cash, were enough for low-income families to offset the increase in spending due to inflation. For middle-income families, the support we gave was enough to offset about half of the increase in spending arising from inflation. That was what we did last year, and we will consider what we have to do this year. So when you look at it in totality, we have workfare, we have progressive wages, and there will continue to be support measures to help families, particularly in the lower income groups, cope with the pressures of inflation. And that's why it doesn't mean we are not going to update workfare and progressive wages over time but we have different measures and different schemes to address different issues. And with inflation, we have other means to address. It's not, not all of the help needs to be loaded on workfare and progressive wages. There are other schemes that we have in place as well. Um, on paternity leave, um, I would just say we continue to review the whole series of uh, measures we have for marriage and parenthood. Uh, leave arrangements are just part of it, but it goes beyond the number of days of paternity leave, I think. I think a lot of this is also mindsets and getting fathers and husbands to play a bigger role in caregiving arrangements for their children. I think some of, it, some of those mindsets have changed. You see younger parents today, the fathers are more progressive, they are more enlightened, they do want to take care of their kids, they want to be more involved, which is a, an excellent thing. Um, I think mindsets of employers also need to change. Um, but overall, if you look at paternity leave, the take-up rate amongst men in Singapore is still not as high as what we would like it to be, even today. Uh, so there is still scope for uh, us to encourage, for employers to encourage, for society to encourage fathers to play a bigger role. And we will continue to do so while reviewing all the different measures. On the anti-discrimination uh, provisions, we have said very clearly it covers sex, 
race, sex is different from gender. Right? So we have, it will cover sex, it will cover race, religion, age. We have stated very clearly what the areas of coverage are for the Anti-Discrimination Act. Uh, that was something Mom has put out, and in due course, we will have a debate on this in Parliament when the Act is tabled. I suggest, because we're running out of time, that we take the questions from all of you who are still standing and wrap it after that. So, lady in blue, please. Hi, uh, good afternoon, DPM Wong. My name is Radha Basu and I'm from the South Foundation. Uh, in your speech, you mentioned the need to strengthen the adult uh, uh, skills training programs so that it leads to better quality jobs. Uh, can you elaborate on the government's thinking on that, particularly with regard to older mid-career workers whose skills are at risk of being rendered obsolete? Uh, and I ask this question because there is evidence from the focus group discussions we've been conducting that uh, older workers might need more guidance and support with regard to upskilling, and that, uh, you know, there are anecdote, too many courses to choose from, and sometimes, uh, quite often, this upskilling is not leading to better quality jobs. Thank yeah, you. absolutely. So it's exactly the points that you raised. Um, we want to make sure we have a better system to help mid-careers. They could be already working today, they could be unemployed, but we want a better system to help them update their skills, get a new, fresh injection of skills to do better in the existing industry or perhaps even to transit to a new area. How do we help them? I think part of it is to make sure that the, we empower them, we help them you know, navigate these changes. But the big obstacle to getting new skills for many of them, as I mentioned just now in my remarks, is that they need to take time away from work in order to go for substantial training. And that's very hard to do for many, for many workers. Their employers may not support them. And even if their employers say, fine, go for training, uh, they may not get paid. Then it, it's a non-starter for many workers because they say, if I don't get paid for a week, I, I don't want to go for training. So how do we think about designing a system that will help support workers go for the necessary training? And then on top of that, we must make sure that the training is relevant and the training leads to better employment and earnings outcomes. So there's also a need to curate the causes. And if it's a worker that's displaced uh, presently, we want to make sure that the training leads to placement outcomes. They get a job. Right? So again, we need industry buy-in for this. It's not just about you know, having any course available, but really thinking about a good curation of programs with endorsement from the industry so that there is uh, assurance that when that person goes for training, they can, after tr training, get a better job, get better pay. So there are quite a number of moving parts around this. It's quite a complex um, uh, area. And that's why if you look around the world, very few countries, in fact, we don't know of any very good examples of countries with a comprehensive nationwide system of adult training and job placement. It's something we are trying to design and do better in Singapore. Last question to the young lady over there. Hi, um, DPM Wong. My name is Dia Chen, and um, I work in the space of leadership and organizational transformation. So we help organizations um, create cultures where everyone can thrive in the workplace and beyond. So my question, um, 
goes back to what you spoke about and what so many of the speakers spoke about today, this mindset shift, this cultural shift that has to happen. And I'm curious what you think is, you know, what's stopping us from doing this because we've been talking about this shift that needs to happen and what can we do, um, all of us here in the room and beyond, to really um, be enablers of this shift to happen because, you know, they say culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? And we can have the best policies in place, the best strategies in place, but how do we really shift this culture and to have it stick? Which, which aspect of culture are you referring to that, that change? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm thinking about workplace culture because we're really looking at that here. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, um, you know, just how we reimagine retirement even. You know, my mother-in-law just retired after a whole career in the ministry and she's like, I still love what I do. I don't want to stop working, right? Yes. And this whole idea of how we rethink work and this big shift both on the employer side as well as those in the workforce. Um, I'm curious what, uh, you know, you think on, on how we start to plant these seeds uh, for this cultural shift and to water the right seeds that will allow us to kind of progress into the future with more equity and equality as, as several of the other folks in the audience have asked. Sure. No, thank, thanks for that. It's, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of the changes we are talking about at the workplace, policies can facilitate, incentives can facilitate, but at the end of the day, it's a mindset change. And that mindset entails cultural change, which is not easy to engender and takes time. Uh, but we shouldn't be too pessimistic. I, I don't think we need to be too pessimistic. Uh, the change can happen, but it will be something that will... Um, we, we must be patient uh, and recognize that there are different stakeholders in this ecosystem. For example, we talk a lot about employers having to change their mindsets. Employers changing their mindsets with regard to how they treat their employees, investing in their training, ensuring that they are paid well, and ensuring that they have opportunities to you know, do well in, in their careers. But if you talk to many employers today, and first of all, you've got to recognize that our the, the corporate landscape in Singapore is very diverse. If you talk to the big companies, the MNCs, for example, um, they are quite progressive and they have the resources and the bandwidth uh, to update their HR policies. In fact, they, they will want to make sure that their HR policies are best in class and aligned with best practices everywhere. But MNCs are only a small fraction of our corporate landscape. A large number of employers are SME owners, SME business owners. And if you talk to them today, and, and in, in our pre-budget dialogues, for example, we have been doing a series of dialogues with all the industry associations. Uh, you know, they are, all of them, many of them, the business owners, the small business owners are concerned about survival. They are concerned about business cost. They are concerned about not being able to find workers. And if you say, why don't you employ more Singaporeans? They will tell you, but I can't find the Singaporeans to fill these jobs. And then, of course, the next question is, what is your starting salary? Why don't you raise salaries more? And then they will say, but if I raise salaries more, I can't survive. Business costs, I can't make a profit and I'll have to close. So how do you navigate that? How do we help them to, 
deal with their existing issues and come around to saying, okay, you know, we get through some of the key immediate concerns you have, but these are also important issues around you know, worker security, salaries, retirement, fair employment. These are also important issues for you to address. And that's why I think navigating change in any society is always a complex endeavor. It's never uh, so straightforward. You don't always just move linearly and in, 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 you just press a button and the change happens. You need engagement, you need negotiation, you need that discourse with all the many stakeholders that are out there, each one focusing on their own areas of concerns. The good thing is that in Singapore, we have a strong foundation of navigating these differences. We have a very strong and solid tripartite partnership built up over many years and decades. There is trust amongst the different stakeholders. So whether it's dealing with fair employment, anti-discrimination, flexi work arrangements, we work through in that fashion and we are able to move forward. The changes we make through these deliberations and uh, discussions may not satisfy everyone. It may not satisfy some groups here who say, oh, you need to change more. But it may not satisfy the SME owners also who say, look, you are changing too much. And I'm overwhelmed by all the impositions that you are making on me. But in the end, we have to learn to compromise. We have to learn to accommodate one another and do things in a pragmatic fashion so that we can keep on moving forward. That is what the Singapore story is about. Continually evolving, progressing and moving forward. And that's what we aim to do in order to refresh our social compact going forward as well. Thank you very much, DPM Wong. And also for, I'm just going to wrap, for telling us, for promising us that the government will do more for gig workers, for training, to, hold, to close the retirement gap for people in their 50s, that you'll be spending more on GDP. And we will all look forward to all these details on February the 14th. Uh, not, not necessarily on oh. February the 14th. <laughs> some uh, of it anyway. Some it, of it maybe. Possibly an election but, year as well. Yeah, well, okay. Possibly. Where did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> the, February 14 is the budget, but um, we are still having the Forward Singapore deliberations and we will complete that exercise only in the second half of this year. So, so not everything to be delivered in the budget. Right, and on that note, thank you very much. Thank you very much for being a wonderful audience. Thank you. And have a very good evening. Thank you. Thank you.